as he says, we will never make sense of anything in this Christian life if we don't know who God is. We will not make sense of ourselves. We will not make sense of the mission that God has put us on, of the pilgrim's journey, of the ups and downs and, and, and the sufferings and the good times. We won't make sense of any of that. We don't know who God is. And we see that, and we have seen that with Moses as we continue to see it. I'm going to take a little bit of time in the context to set up our, our sermon today. And then at the end, we'll look at two attributes of God. We'll look at his deity and his simplicity. His deity and his simplicity. Two attributes that maybe you don't hear often, maybe you're not even certain exactly what they mean, but they really are at the very heart, the very core, the foundation of who God is. And the other attributes will grow from that. And we'll see those revealed in this text to us. Those attributes are what we call the incommunicable attributes of God. If you know that distinction, incommunicable attributes are those things that belong to God and God alone. He shares them in, and He shares them in no way with His creation. Such as God is eternal, God is infinite, God is omniscient, all-knowing. Those are things that belong to God and God alone. The communicable attributes, ones that He communicates with us, are the ones that His creatures share in some level. That would be holiness, love, justice. Now we share those in a very imperfect, impartial way. And yet we do share those with our God in some way. But at the heart of the incommunicable attributes of God, what really sets Him apart and makes Him wholly different than His creation are His deity and His simplicity. If you remember the context, we get the beginning of Exodus. Joseph has died. The king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, they've forgotten Joseph. And with forgetting Joseph, they've also forgotten Joseph, God. During that same time, God has been faithful to His children of Israel. And they, they flourished and done pretty well in Egypt. And they've grown and, and sort of lived alongside the Egyptians. But their numbers are getting bigger and bigger. And it starts to worry the king. It starts to worry the, the Pharaoh at the time. And he sees, wow, that they're growing in number. They could become an, an enemy of us. They could become a real competitor. And so... He puts a few things into motion, and it starts out, he says in the text, he does so in a sneaky, scheming type of way. And so, it's, well, let's just be hard on these people. We'll be a, a little bit hard and cruel towards them. They continue to flourish. So then he's like, well, let's actually enslave them and treat them with all cruelty and put hard labor upon them and just make life miserable for them. And yet, they continue to multiply and grow. So then he continues to scheme. So he, he goes to the Egyptian midwives, if you remember. He says, as you see these uh, mothers who are expecting, when they, when they have little ones and you're there, if it's a son, if it's a male, I want you to you know, quietly put your servant to sleep. So it's a late-term abortion. If it's a, a daughter, go ahead and, and you let them live. It's a male. But it says that the, the midwives, wouldn't do it. They wouldn't go along with that. And they made up an excuse when the Pharaoh got mad why it wasn't working. So then Pharaoh quit with the secret scheming and he just made an edict that I want the sons of the little boys, the sons of the Hebrew people, I want to kill. And yet God still continued to protect and care for his people. And it's 
in this context that Moses is born, that Moses enters onto the scene. I won't go through all the way that God prepared him and protected him. We'll, when we look at the sovereignty of God, we'll look at some of that. But God does prepare and protect Moses. When we get to our text today in Exodus 3, find Moses, he has married out in the wilderness. He's married a Midianite woman. Again, a family. Finds himself a fairly boring job, shepherding some sheep, working for his father-in-law. He's out in some solitary way at the edge of the, the wilderness, the edge of where he's grazing. He's at uh, the, the bottom of Mount Horeb, the Mount of God.
is this book playing for Peter's life and he's trying to get Peter's attention. Simon, Simon, according to Peter, that's his other name. Simon, Simon. He's speaking to Mary and Martha. Address to Martha. Martha, you see, Jesus Christ has died. He's died. It captures our attention. So he does that here. Moses, Moses, listen to what I have to say. Remember, as we talked about, that 
Egypt had forgotten God, and so had in large part the children of Israel sort of melded into the culture of Egypt. And, and whatever they saw their God, there's no longer an exclusivity to the God of Abraham. Enough so that Moses is wondering, okay, now which God is this that's talking to me? Uh, you say to be with me, but what, what God should I tell them? So, in the culture of that day, it would be polytheistic. It would also be pantheistic. In the sense of, okay, the sun is a God, the water is a God, and God is nature, nature is God. This sort of polytheistic, pantheistic, and then really a, a, a synchronistic type of worship as well, in that it would be that it's not like, hey, I'm really committed to the moon God. That's my God. But it's, no, I'm committed to the moon God, but if I need my crops to grow, then I'll just pray to the rain God. But if, you know, we're, we want to have a baby, we'll all pray to the sun God. So it's just kind of synchronistic. Whatever you need to do, so you just have multiple gods in this pluralistic society. And we'll see later in the play how God shows himself supreme over each of them. And so Moses is saying, okay, which of these gods, who is it, who should I refer to that has sent me? God answers in verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he says this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. That same verb comes out again, I will be with you. And now he just says, I am. I am who I am will be with you. God introduces himself philosophical, important component, an apologetic component that is being here. It says, I am who I am. God is presenting himself as the self-existent, transcendent, independent God. He's differentiating himself from all of creation. He's differentiating himself from all of the other gods of their polytheism. He's saying, I am who I am. I'm the self-existent God, the one who has its pure being, its essential being within me. In fact, God introduces himself this way from the very first verse of the Bible, doesn't he? Where we're introduced to God not as just creator, but to his authority. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And so you have this picture right off the bat that if there was a point when there was no matter, when there was none of this universe, but there never was a point when there wasn't God. In the beginning, God, Psalm 93, 1 and 2, Psalm 90, verse 2, if you take a note, a couple verses that speak about that. God being from everlasting to everlasting, His eternal nature. When we talk about the aseity, the self-existence of God, when He introduces Himself with to be, the I am, I am who I am, saying that God has all life 
in himself. But God is not dependent on anything. He is not contingent. He is not derived. He is fully self-contained, self-existent. From that, we understand that our physical life, everything in this world that has been, even our spiritual life, is contingent, is derived, is dependent upon God. Self-sufficient, self-contained. When we bump into this at first, it's hard. It's hard. It, it, it's awkward making sense of it. Almost uncomfortable making sense of it. A little bit. A.W. Tozer in his book on the attributes of God says this. He goes, "The child, by his question, where did God come from, is unwittingly acknowledging his creaturehood." Already the concept of cause and source and origin is firmly fixed in his mind. He knows that everything around him came from something other than himself, and he simply extends that concept upward to God. The little philosopher is thinking in true creature idiom, and allowing for his lack of basic information, he's reading it correctly. He must be told that God has no origin, and he will find this hard to grasp since it introduces a category with which he is fully unfamiliar and contradicts a bent toward origin thinking so deeply ingrained in all intelligent beings. A bent that impels them to close ever back and back towards undiscovered beginnings. He's underived. There is no outward force. God is under no constraint, no compulsion, no need. That he created, that he redeemed his creation, and did so merely out of his own good pleasure for the sake of his manifest glory. He did not create us because he was lonely and he needed us. It's a popular song, I like it, we've almost done it here, except for this one line. The line goes, He didn't want heaven without us, but we brought heaven down. I hate that picture that it paints of a God who's kind of lonely up there, not sure what to do. He just needs us. We operate too much of our lives in that sort of realm anyway, but we're doing God a favor by acknowledging Him and by giving Him a little place in our lives. And He is wholly independent and we are wholly dependent upon Him. Three things that I think jump out that are important in our lives when we think of the ability of God. That it's not just some theoretical thing. All of reality is bound up in God. All of reality is bound up in God. Listen to Romans 11, 34 to 36. For who has known the mind of God, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. Him be glory forever. It's an all-inclusive statement here. Of course, God is the source of all things. He's the means of all things. He is the goal of all things. There's no reality outside of this statement. Nothing escapes this statement and his reality. God alone has eternal being. Secondly, our existence is found in him. There's no reality outside of him, but our very existence is found in him. Listen to Acts 17. As Paul reasons with with the other scholars on 
starts to reason with them, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. For in him we live and move and have our being. Here in him we live and move and have our being. Our very identity, our very being, the essence of who we are, exists only in and through and for God. I won't go too deep into it, but this is one of the core tenets of Christian apologetics. If you remember what we went through first Peter, we are called to be ready, always ready to give the answer to anyone for the hope that is in us, a defense for our Christian beliefs that begins squarely with defending the existence of God. That we would take faith and reason and work them together to, to make a, a reasonable defense for the existence of God. And so the, the very core of apologetics begins with what they call the end necessarium. That God is the necessary or essential being. He is the necessary being first because since He is being itself, God cannot not be. Yeah, I'm not trying to get too heavy on it, but that idea that it's impossible for God to not be, for He is being itself. That is His ontology. The second reason that He is necessary being is that if there is anything, then it is necessary that God was. So the reason's this way. If there is some point when there was nothing, then the only outcome is that there is nothing left. So you think, okay, most people will accept that. So they have to think, at some, there has to be being. How do we make sense of everything we see around us? And how do we look around us and make sense of everything? So you have four basic options. There's tons of theories, but they all fall into these four basic options. Everything else is an illusion, but that's been defeated many times. Secondly, this world is self-created. That fails every logical test, so we can just use that one. You're left with two options. What we see is self-existent. It is eternally self-existent. Or what we see is created by someone who is self-existent. And those are the two theories that you're left with. So one leads you in the end to a big, big bang idea that everything you see around you, all being, was in a point of singularity that for some unexplained reason suddenly exploded and became what it is now. Or there is someone who is pure essence, who is the I am. And in him, everything that you see finds its being, finds its life, finds its purpose in and through and for him. So the ontological argument begins with this I am. Moses wants some confidence. What am I supposed to tell these people? Them the essence of all being. But second, last point on his deity is that he still chooses to use us to bring about his purpose. When you think of this magnificent God, when you think of us wholly dependent, our life wholly contingent, dependent upon him, and yet we live our life as if thinking highly of ourselves and we're not dependent on Him in any way. 
recognizing Him from time to time. And yet, Scripture tells He has told us that we can be the fingers, the hands, the feet, the eyes, part of His church, which is carrying out His mission, a, a meaningful part of seeing the kingdom come, His will be done, that He chooses to work through us for such a, a glorious thing, such an honor and a privilege to be part of the kingdom work of God. And you think that He doesn't need us. And yet He condescends and comes into fellowship and works through us. I heard this illustration from one of the people who said this is really interesting, but he talked about when God using us. He was using the life of a student and said, God said, illustration. If you were listening to the but the average life of a student is about between 13 and 16,000 years. Here's a reference to the Jeffrey Jeff. So, imagine if you're watching one of the stages and they're going up to security entrance and they're checking the clock, getting ready to come into the homestead. The first person to check the clock has got like a light blue chipped up light, it's got a little wicker basket in the front, a little hanging bag, kind of like this. And Garage sale to garage sale to come in. And he's just coming down the home stretch in a minute. I mean, it's amazing that any of those guys can do what they do on um, those mountains out in the west. But how impressed would you be if you can just that win on the second day? And the point of it was it correlates a little bit of God using us in the work of his kingdom. And just the privilege it is for us and the glory. Second attribute, that is the saying that God has life, God has being in himself. That name, I am who I am, that verb, that's where Yahweh comes from. That there's the, from the same root there. Yahweh, I am. That's who we say that name. Then hand in hand with that is the simplicity of God. Simplicity can be be a little bit confusing because it can sound almost like an insult that God is who is, you know, simple-minded, that he knows what's in our case, what's in our fist, or that, that he's simple in the sense he's easy to understand. What simplicity of God means is that God is not made up of parts, but he is one. He's not made up of a collection of his attributes, as if you would think like a and he's like a slice of kindness and a slice of holiness and a slice of love and all those things together. God is not made up of parts. He does not consist of goodness, mercy, justice, and power, but he is goodness. He is mercy. He is justice, whatever that attribute is. Every attribute of God is identical with his essence. that he is God and we just add some attributes and characteristics to him. Like it would be us. Like I'm Dan and yes, I can speak Italian. I have a uh, high school English 
very essence, his very being, is all of those attributes. And that he is holy and perfectly love, and holy and perfectly holiness, and he is holy and perfectly whatever the attributes you want to say, always and at all times, the essential, the essence of who he is. He's not composite, he's not made up. Rather, his essence is his attribute. So, why does this matter? How does this affect the way we should think about God? Three thoughts, and we'll be done. First of all, this attribute of simplicity or doctrine of simplicity guards how we think about God, especially how we think about his incomprehensibility. When we talk about God being incomprehensible, it's not like this idea that you have been a pizza pie and we only know like four of the slices, but there's another eight slices to them that we have no idea about. God is revealed to us and He never changes and He is holy all of these things in unity all the time. So Everything else needs to be sacrificed to 
set aside one characteristic of predetermined man in the soul of man and shows this in our imperfect He is totally and essentially holy, pure, loving, all that he is, all the time. He is our Father. Just the fact that this God who is being accepted, who we are very different and kindred and dependent upon. God who is simple in the sense of He is with His attributes our possession. But we don't just know Him as an idea. We don't just know Him as a divine power. But we get to know these things about God intimately and deeply. That's what God emphasizes in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me. He's your father. He, he relates to you. You experience him. You don't just kind of learn about him in some idealistic, theoretical way. But you get to know him in a personal relationship. And the fact that this God would condescend to his creatures in this way is amazing. He shows us so in verse 15. God reminds Moses, he reminds us, this is my name forever. Thus my name Yahweh. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for our God. Lord, a little different sermon this morning, a little worth thinking on ideas and clarity of simplicity. But Lord, this should broaden our understanding of you, encourage our worship of you, produce the amount of humility and trust in you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that not dependent upon anything. You have no gain of having men. There is no shadow of standing between you. Lord, let me just tell you outside of my own perfect experience today that we thank you for that, Lord, and how you demand that all gain and all right comes from you. Everywhere we 